and a warm welcome to Andy's Treasure Trove, San Francisco, a new podcast that explores culture, art, and fun here in San Francisco and many other places that I travel. I'm your host, Andy Moore, and the title Andy's Treasure Trove means that I consider the people, things, and ideas that we'll be exploring together on this podcast to be real treasures that have greatly enriched my life and that I want to share now with you. If you subscribe to Andy's Treasure Trove, and I sure hope you do, either via iTunes, via my own website, andystreasuretrove.com, or any of the usual podcast places, you're going to get a fun and informative weekly show featuring lots and lots of interviews with a very eclectic array of guests, famous as well as unknown. We'll be going on audio adventures, discovering some of the hidden treasures of San Francisco. You'll go along with me to restaurants, film festival parties, street protests, We'll be having tea at the Ritz and the Palace with local literary lights, and then go out of town for nature hikes along the Sonoma and Mendocino Coast, and other places around California and beyond. There'll be lots of music, some humorous, dramatic productions that we're putting together. We'll even have some consumer advice and product reviews, household tips, and things like that. Based on my many years as a travel writer and so-called hotel expert, I'll be sharing inside information as well as photos and videos from my stays at more than 50 different hotels in San Francisco. I just mentioned photos and videos, and there are going to be lots and lots of photos and videos on andystreasuretrove.com. I'm a filmmaker and a photographer, and I shoot most everywhere I go, so you're going to be able to take a look at high-resolution photos and low-resolution videos of the people and places covered in the podcast. And we'll be featuring you, the greatest treasure of all, the Andy's Treasure Trove audience, via some really fun ways that we're devising that you'll be able to participate in the show. So there's going to be something for everyone. And if you don't like a particular segment, just fast forward to the next one for something completely different. Here are some samples of what we have in store for you over the next several months of Andy's Treasure Trove, starting with episode one in just a few short weeks. First, we're going to hear an excerpt from an interview I did recently with local stand-up comedian and impresario Lisa Geduldig. She's going to tell us about something very special happening this Sunday at the Herbst Theater, the return of Charo. She was introduced to the States through The Tonight Show and then Merv Griffin Show, and she started doing this little coochie-coochie number, which actually comes from her childhood dog's name was Cuchillo. She would imitate it, and people would laugh, and this just became part of her shtick. Oh, I thought it was Coochie Coochie Coo. No, a lot of people do. She went on to these shows, like The Tonight Show, and she wanted to play flamenco guitar, and they were like, no, 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 you know, honey, you just do this. So, you know, she was typecast into that. I brought her to San Francisco in August of 2005. She did a sold-out show at the Herbst Theater. She's a serious artist, and she's also a very funny performer on stage. She does a lot of shtick. She actually, her show is half just doing um, kind of like a Las Vegas review, running around stage singing with a backup band and okay. Las Vegas dancers. And then she'll go change into like gold lame sequin pantsuit and sit on a stool and play amazing kick-ass flamenco guitar. She had a fantastic time, and she was totally thrilled to come back to San Francisco to be part of the uh, Gay and Lesbian, etc. Pride Parade, and to be a celebrity grand marshal, and she loves the idea of the look-alikes on the float, and, and then doing a concert that night at 8 o'clock at the Herbst Theater. And how can people get tickets in advance? Koshercomedy.com, kosher with a K, comedy with a C. 
And would, in this context, would crazy be with a C or a K? Crazy? You know. Oh, no, C. Kooky, crazy. Because otherwise it would be crazy cat. Well. Or crazy glue. I don't think crazy cat has a corner on Ks. Yeah, I'm not big on Ks. Oh, I think it's one of the best letters in the alphabet. <laughs> Maybe I'll see you at the Charo show this coming Sunday, June 29th. Um, hopefully we'll get an interview with Charo herself, and I'll be able to play that in the next episode of Andy's Treasure Trove. Another timely San Francisco event, in fact, one that's happening right now as I speak, is Frameline 32, the oldest and largest LGBT film festival in the world. About 70,000, 80,000 people are filling theater seats right now, uh, watching hundreds and hundreds of different LGBT-themed films from all over the world. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke to Frameline's head honcho for over 25 years, Michael Lumpkin, who's leaving Frameline as he reflects back on the evolution of queer media and his role championing it. You know, I, I think that Frameline and the festival has accomplished a lot. And I, and I think the, the, your, your, your kind of vision of the future, your goals for the future, um, adapt and change as the needs of your constituency changes. Well, congratulations on all your years of running this festival and this organization. It's um, been a great run. I hope you'll agree. Thank you. It's benefited a lot of us. <laughs> And I'm really looking forward to this festival, especially the seven films that you program, because um, they're all really great, and we get to see them on film. Yay! Yeah, and I'll be there. <laughs> and you'll be there. Frameline gives awards every year mm-hmm. uh, to filmmakers, and one special award, uh, the Frameline Award. Um, who's getting the Frameline Award this year? Oh, uh, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm getting it this year. Well, you I'm deserve joking. it. Did, you. Did, did you have to argue? Like, did, did you say, no, don't give it to me, and then they insisted? Oh, I probably did a little of that, but not very much. Uh-huh. I caved in. The entire interview with Michael will be available on a future episode, as will the rest of my coverage of Frameline 32. A lot of the people interviewed on this podcast are going to be filmmakers and writers and artists, but an especially large number of filmmakers talking about their projects past and present. Here's a short excerpt from a recent telephone interview I did with the British director Terence Davies, the director of House of Mirth, The Neon Bible, and one of my favorites, The Long Day Closes, a film that portrays his early life in working-class Liverpool, years he said were the happiest, in fact, the only happy years of his life. And you have to try and capture the quintessence of any memory, of any action, of any experience, and refine it down. Um, and that's when it becomes something beyond what it originally was. Um, but it's, n- it, it's not the only criteria you've got when you cast anybody, whether they're playing me or any member of my family, is are they believable as actors or actresses? That's what, because if they, if they can look like you and they can be very nice people, but if, if, if they can't act, then you've got a problem. <laughs> you were at school and that went on for four years, every day for four years, and I didn't tell anyone. And my father, who was very violent and very ill, and, um, you, that you have your self-esteem battered out of you. And I, I, I do believe very strongly that you don't get that esteem back. You can't manufacture it. Um, well, at least I can't anyway. Um, perhaps those, all those different forces which were working on me did produce, you know, creativity. I don't know, because it's very hard to know um, where creativity comes from. You know, why, why, why should I and the family be the creative one, if you like? Um, but I don't really deal with the world very well. I, I really, really don't. Um, I'm subject to a great deal of despair, a great deal of depression, 
um, and sometimes even my great solaces like um, T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets or the music of Bruckner. Um, even they don't work sometimes. Um, and that's when it becomes very, very difficult. I have not matured enough to deal with the world, I'm afraid. I know that you were uh, made a fellow of the British Film Institute in recognition of your outstanding contribution to film culture. <laughs> well, it, it didn't seem to have anything to do with me. <laughs> Because I don't see myself like that at all. I mean, I just don't. You know, when I think of, you know, other people's work that I, I admire and revere, mine seems to be very poor by comparison. So it was very nice for my for the old ego, but um, I just thought, well, I, I, I wonder why I'm getting it. <laughs> A charming man and an amazing artist. I think you'll really enjoy the interview with Terence. And you'll learn what I said that caused this reply. <laughs> Oh, you mad, impulsive fool. Back in the States, we'll hear from Don Logsdon and Lucy Faulkner, who were finishing a documentary in New Orleans when Hurricane Katrina hit and changed the film and their lives. Suddenly, there was like nobody in the neighborhood. Everybody was dispersed, and nobody could come back, and people could only trickle back really slowly as they were able to financially. And so the community was in like total crisis, and for probably six to nine months, we didn't know if we were making a film about a place that was gone. This guy, it turns out this guy was a mercenary. He had a New Orleans fire department flag on his, you know, swamp mobile. But then he started telling us that he was in Africa and... In the Congo. In the Congo and El Salvador and Nicaragua. He was a scary guy. And he had a gun on one side, a, and a knife machete. on the other side, and a machete. So when he finally brought us back to dry land, he said, uh, I think you guys ought to pay me something. Well, you can hear what happened next, as well as many other exciting stories of documentary film production in hurricane-stricken New Orleans. And you can find out about Faubourg Treme, the untold story of black New Orleans. That's the title of this documentary film that's been winning film festival awards across the country. You can get more information at tremedoc.com, T-R-E-M-E-D-O-C.com. Next, let's listen to a recent visit with my friend Karen Peterson, which started out innocuously enough chatting in a cafe discussing sunglasses. Oh, nice. These are the glasses that skateboarding guys wear because they're really tough. So, do any half pipes lately? Uh, not really. <laughs> no. From here, I suggest we move on to the Columbarium. Mm -hmm. okay. if, it's, if it's open, we'll probably spend 20 or 30 minutes there. Little did we know that what we thought would be a brief visit to one of San Francisco's most fascinating final resting places would turn into a lengthy visit there with Emmett, caretaker and historian. We're just admiring this beautiful place. If you want some history about the place, I can oh, yeah. give you some of that. Okay. Oh, please tell us. What you see, what you call beauty now was a disaster when I first started here. When I walked in here, it scared me half to death. <laughs> it took me a minute to realize where I was at, you know. I'm looking around, there's raccoons running everywhere. Oh, wow. <laughs> Pigeons sleeping in the empties, mushrooms growing all out the wall, mildew. The floors have a thick green slime mm. because it rained in here 13 and a half years. At daytime, but it was bad enough. I ain't wasn't no way I'm coming here at night. We had a great conversation with Emmett that I know you're going to enjoy listening to. 
Next, we'll listen to a piece of a conversation I had with Professor of Visual Arts Steve Fagan, an artist in his own right, about his collaboration with Eloisa Houdenschild and the various projects they're working on all over the world. The opportunity of being chair of visual arts at UCSD gave me the opportunity to not what the university wanted, prepare people for a world, but actually be a player in the world that I felt as the chair of visual arts, I could help sponsor alternative space forming help commission young people to do work, activate connections with museums, activate connections with patrons, and and really perform a world. These type of refugee projects that would sort of invite people to take risks and pay no interest in so-called disciplines, fields, or any goal other than doing something interesting and feeling the rest of the uh, outline of the of the terrain would take care of itself if we produced the points of interest. I mean, this idea that Aloisa would move from simply being a collector and a patron to actually being a producer more in the way people with resources behaved in the 1920s and not just sitting around with themselves thinking how wonderful they were and how much extra money they were making, uh, uh, but actually could you know, invent culture, not just receive culture. And basically what I told Eloisa, like, you know, your family has a lot of resources. I got a job that I can't get fired from UCSD. We're the two people that could take a risk and just do something, not care about the money, not care about, you know, what other people thought. Let's just do it. Isn't that our mandate? Isn't that the mandate of a patron? Isn't that the mandate of a university professor to sort of set new terrain and take advantage of their privilege in that way, not just kind of, you know, pass the uh, congratulations, please. In a multi-part interview, we're going to be finding out about Steve and Eloise's projects in Palestine, Argentina, and Los Angeles. But right now, go with me to one of our local pizza restaurants with my friend Catherine and some others. One that I won't tell you the name of now. But after you hear the podcast episode, I bet you'll want to go there. I was worried about my weight and my pocketbook. (laughs) Oh, those things. (laughs) But I will say that the pizza is exceptional. Every single one, and I've tried them all, except maybe one or two. How many times do you think you've been here? I have been here well over... 20 times in the last I hate to say it but maybe 6 or 8 months Well, and, and just now you're getting around to coming here with us I mean we didn't know about this place you could have shared well it with us a long time in Glen Park. here we go into the restaurant oh it's going to be wonderful one of these pizzas has pancetta and wild nettle and the other one has Asparagus and green garlic. Yum. And there are several other restaurants that we'll be visiting along the way. Next, I'd like you to hear a couple minutes from my recent phone chat with Joanne Brazil, novelist, playwright, astrology expert, and lots more. She's going to tell us about something that started out as a story, became a novel, and is now a play, and she'll read some of it for us. Uh, This project started when I moved to Berkeley. I moved in with a friend of mine's mother. I was working on a novel, and I just moved in to create some time to write. She had, was in the early stages of Alzheimer's disease, but uh, you could still have a wonderful conversation with her. We could still go to the movies. And she had been an actress in a traveling theater company in Germany, so she was lots of fun to talk to because she was very animated, and she would get very excited about things that she liked. The longer I stayed, of course, unfortunately, the worse 
she got, uh, the fewer things she could remember. And then she started telling the same stories over and over because she couldn't carry on a conversation. She couldn't remember what happened five minutes ago, but she could remember what happened in Germany in the 20s. And that's when she was an actress in a traveling theater. So I heard these stories about the traveling theater over and over and over till I practically had them committed to memory. The longer I lived with her, the more I got to know her, the more I got to understand what happened in Dresden during the Holocaust. Eventually, I, I stopped working on the novel I was working on, and I started writing Hilda's story. Okay, in the beginning, Hildegard enters. She's dressed elegantly, desperately looking for something. She sees the audience and lights up, and she says, Oh, please excuse me. I was just looking for something. I didn't realize you were here. Meine Damen und Herren, ladies and gentlemen, guten Abend. Good evening and welcome to the Wander Theater. Please come in and make yourselves comfortable. Allow me to introduce myself. I am Hildegard and this is my home. I've been here in America for years teaching German, but I'm originally from Dresden, Germany. And when I lived in Dresden, I was in the theater, the Wander Theater. In German, we pronounced it Wander Theater. But here in America, I believe you say Wander Theater, and that was the traveling theater. Last week, Michael gave me a tape recorder. He wants me to record my life story, but my life would make an awful and a terrible story. No one wants to hear an awful story. And anyway, I can't remember what happened in the end. My memory, it's like a picture with many holes. You see, I have the old-timers disease. Alzheimer's, you say in English. I have it only when I need to remember something and can't. My son Peter, he is a doctor of psychiatry. Peter tells me that I'm just in the early stages, but he recommends that I move to a new type of housing called assisted living. Well, our President Reagan is quite forgetful and no one tells him to go to assisted living. We'll hear Joanne read some more from her play, The Wander Theater. In fact, we're talking about doing a full-scale production exclusively for Andy's Treasure Trove, so stay tuned for that. Now let's plunge ourselves right into the middle of an anti-war protest where I was with the author Fenton Johnson, and we happened to run into Stuart Gaffney, one of the plaintiffs in the historic trial that overturned marriage laws in the state of California. But we talked to Stuart before that happened. Well, John and I, my partner of 21 years, are plaintiffs in this lawsuit, and uh, it was really amazing to be there uh, as their very lives were debated before the justices. Um, It was many things at the same time. It was romantic, it was nerve-wracking, it felt historic, and uh, it was scary. So I think uh, in the end, though, I feel very hopeful. I feel more hopeful after the hearing than before, which is a good feeling. And um, I'm really hopeful that, you know, we'll have a better California as a result, where all loving couples are treated the same. And that's really all the case is about. Well, I have a humbler hope, and that is that any of this turns out to be audible. (laughs) It, It might be of interest to note to your audience that um, Arizona in Arizona we I'm sorry my audience is not interested in Arizona at all 
I suspect you're correct. But go ahead anyway. In Arizona, uh, which is often thought of as being a conservative state, we successfully defeated a anti-gay marriage uh, and anti-domestic partner amendment to the Constitution. And as we all know, as goes Arizona, <laughs> so goes Let's hope not, the country. Let's hope because Arizona is probably going to vote for John McCain simply because he is, represents the place even if he has never lived there. Later that evening, and in a much quieter place, Fenton read aloud some of the introduction to his book, Keeping Faith, A Skeptic's Journey. This particular leg of my journey began a few months earlier in my Kentucky hometown at the Sherwood Inn, the hotel tavern acquired by my great-grandfather Thomas Harden Johnson in the mid-1870s and run by my family in the century-plus since. On a bright spring afternoon in March 1996, I was visiting for the celebration of my mother's 80th birthday and standing on the Sherwood porch when my aunt poked her head out the door to tell me there was a knock at the back door. At the Sherwood, a knock at the back door usually means one thing, so I cut through the bar, grabbed a couple of beers, and went out back to greet one of the monks from the nearby Trappist Monastery, Our Lady of Gethsemane, a crow's mile across the Kentucky hills. Brother Paul Quinon, tall, ascetically thin, and slightly grizzled as befits a poet monk, had hiked over the steep hills that the locals called the Knobs to let me know that in the approaching summer, Gethsemane would host an international convocation of Buddhist and Christian monks and lay contemplatives, with the Dalai Lama of Tibet in attendance. Until recent times, the progression among sons was clear and unyielding. The oldest male inherited the property, the second went to the military, the third went to the government, the fourth went to the church. Ninth of nine children, fourth of four boys, bookish, homosexual, I had religious orders, all but engraved on my forehead. I was destined for the church. For reasons this journey will bring me to reconsider, I determined early on never to set foot in a church except to please my mother, and sometimes not then. A visit with American Christian and Buddhist monks would provide a quick look at the road not taken. That was how I justified my decision to attend the encounter. I would go as a tourist, someone who rents a car, checks into a hotel, spends a day or two driving around, and returns home filled with tales about the quaint and charming ways they do things. I'll learn Buddhism in a few months, I thought, pick up a few stories from the monks, and combine these for a quick article. Then I'll get back to the novel, and my comfortable life in my beloved San Francisco, city of self-satisfaction. What follows is a chronicle of a skeptic's journey into the wilderness, a casual excursion that transformed itself into a search for what it means to have and to keep faith. Those were excerpts, but you can listen to the entire reading on a future episode of Andy's Treasure Trove, as well as a brief interview with Fenton Johnson, where we talk more about faith, organized religion, and he tells me about a recent trip to Calcutta, where he's doing research for his next novel. But next, we're going to hear from another writer that I talked to on the phone recently, Barbara Sher. You might have seen her on some of her public television programs. We started off our talk talking about how technology really has provided a lot of opportunities for many of us. And then we kind of segued into talking about what she was seeing outside her window, something that I'll be doing with many of my telephone guests. There's so much. It's so much easier for people to do what they love without having to wait at the gates for the dragons to maybe let them in and maybe not. And, of course, now with technology, that's really true. 
you know, let's just say you wanted a, your own television show. You know, you would have had to go to college and journalism, and then you would have had to, like, try to get through that world. And if you were lucky, you would wind up saying dreadful things on television that they made you say, right? Well, if you watch your own television show now, all you have to do is shoot a video, put it up on YouTube, and, you know, what do I see? Oh, a, a, a building across the street in Columbus Avenue and, you know, a, a Things that aren't very glamorous, but they're you know far enough away. They're like a hundred yards away. Well, if you're like me, when you're looking out the window, and maybe there's just some buildings out there, mm-hmm. the fact that the light is always changing with the sun and the weather, it really is not just nothing. I mean, oh, no. there's all sorts it, of nuances. It, you know, the light changing is pure heaven. It bounces into different rooms. You know, in my in my apartment, it bounces mm-hmm. off another window, and that light reflects so ghostly, so beautiful, haunting. You know, this is an island, and there are big chunks of open space between the buildings, and you see seagulls fly over there. When I watch seagulls fly between this big open square, this negative space between two buildings, it's like nothing in the world. It's, uh, it's, I can't explain it, how beautiful it is, that, they're, that it's not open, that you can see them flying in this square like a painting or something. Barbara and I talked about a lot of other stuff, including many of the themes of her books. Wishcraft, not witchcraft, but Wishcraft, which is apparently now in its 30th year in print. And the book that really drew me to her, I Could Do Anything If Only I Knew What It Was. Barbara's a great conversationalist, and I know you're going to enjoy the segment with her. I also confided in Barbara, letting her know the reason for an upcoming trip to Los Angeles, something that I'll share with you after it happens. Here's my lead-up to telling her a blank space, and then her response to pique your curiosity. Did I tell you why I'm going to L.A. in no. July? It's, no, it's, it's kind of silly. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Oh, oh, my God, that's hysterical. Next, here's a short preview of a long segment that I'm going to be doing, maybe devote a whole episode, to the opening of the new Contemporary Jewish Museum here in San Francisco. So let's hear a little bit from the architect, Daniel Liebeskind and Museum Board President Rosalind Sissy Swig, among others. This building is not a regular building. It's a building in a great city, San Francisco. It's in the center of one of the most vital urban areas in the world. And to create a building that really speaks to the life of San Francisco, to the life of the contemporary Jewish community, to the traditions within this substation, which was really never meant to have people but batteries, and to transform the energy that was once physical into the energy of creative, the creative world, of the mind, of the arts, of the imagination. That was really the challenge uh, to create this building. And this building is based on very ancient uh, traditions. Uh, I based it on Lechaim, to life. Uh, it is the most eternal and positive idea that Jewish people have contributed to the world. I've always felt that um, art is part of the whole and that uh, for, an, for an individual, it makes them complete. And if you take arts and culture away, then you just haven't, you're not a totally fulfilled person, nor do you have the opportunity to really embrace something that can be enriching and a learning experience and, and sort of an appreciation for other. I think that that's what uh, one of the things that rings truest for me is exposure to the other, exposure to different things or different ways of looking at things. I think museums are a place uh, for access, and I think they're a place for inclusion. People walking in should feel, A, that they're welcome, 
B, that they're comfortable, and C, that they're going to be able to um, derive some benefit from what they're going to see. It shouldn't be, I don't think it should be proselytizing, but I think it should be uh, enriching. I hope I could be as objective as I can. <laughs> well, you probably can't, but that's all right. Um, I, I wanted to explain to our listeners that we've been hearing claps of thunder in the background. Yes. And have you had a chance to play God yet? <laughs> About ten minutes ago I was playing God. Oh, okay. It was interesting. It was really interesting. <laughs> well, I look forward to Andy's treasure trove. I, I think it's a, a, a wonderful addition, and I think you'll have a lot of people responding to it. What a nice thing for Rosalind Swig to say. She's a lovely woman. And you'll hear more of my conversation with her, as well as many other people at the museum, about the museum, the architecture, and the first major exhibit there, called Genesis. Now, we're also going to be talking to some of the artists that are participating in that show, including Ellen Berliner, whose piece we spoke about earlier, where you quote-unquote play God. Now, let's go outdoors. I'm going to be featuring several nature segments during the show. Now, I'm going to play you a little bit of the mockingbird that sings outside my bedroom window each morning, followed by the call of a crow in a redwood forest. Next, we'll go to the Sea Ranch and talk to a seal docent there about harbor seals. And then I'll play you just a short bit from a longer interview that I'll be sharing with you with Jeannie Jackson, who writes a nature column for the Independent Coast Observer in Sonoma and Mendocino counties. So we're looking at, uh, I would say, 20 or 30, uh, maybe, uh, harbor seals hauled out onto the rocks. Yes. The, uh, they spend most of their life uh, on the rocks or on the sand. If the fishing is good, they'll spend 23 hours a day, a day hauled out, um, and easily 12 or more hours a day, even if it's, even if it's not good fishing. So... And, of course, once they're out on the rocks, they're safe from sharks. So, And I would guess it's warmer. So they would just as soon be out on the rocks. The most interesting thing, and I've only seen it once, is to see a birth. And uh, the seals can give birth on the, on the shore, on the sand, or they can do it in the water. They seem to mostly do it on the shore. And, uh, and it only takes about five minutes. But... Uh, it's, it is something to see, and it's actually amazing how big the pups are that come out of the seals. You uh-huh. wonder where they put them. <laughs> I found it interesting that this one woman, Diane Hitchwa, uh, made this very strange sound, like psh, 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 and I didn't know what she was doing, and she was making the call of a specific bird that's agitated. And what it does is it can make a songbird come to see what's going on. So I learned that there's a term for this called pishing, P-I-S-H-I-N-G. And darned if she didn't get this beautiful Wilson's warbler, this incredibly tiny yellow bird with black streaks on its eyes, to come out to see what was going on. So then I went down to our local bookstore, The Four-Eyed Frog, and I got a book with a CD to, to tell me how to do it. There's, there's a whole school of instruction around it? Yeah, about how it, there's, there's all kinds of... The, the, he even, this fellow that wrote the book even has a call of a screech owl. So I don't know if I'm going to be out in the forest during the 
doing the screech owl, but I think I could do the I fishing. think I think you should do a few examples right now. No, this is great. I just <laughs> got this book. So, uh, so I'm not going to get you to do any pishing here. Well, right. you heard the only one I know. Psh, psh, yeah. Psh. And do you know the name of that pish? <laughs> I think it's the titmouse. Oh, there go the jokes again. <laughs> well, birding is, a, is one of the important uh, things that people enjoy here on the coast. And, and the birders are very passionate and very um, protective. And what I've learned also um, are about our seabirds. I, I didn't realize that there were birds that spent their life at sea. And they only come to shore or to our offshore rocks to uh, breed. And so there's, there's a controversy now here with the uh, Wallala Festivals Committee setting off fireworks the last two years, and they have damaged, they've caused birds to abandon their nest on the rocky uh, island off, uh, off our coast. So I've learned a lot more about our nesting seabirds because of that. And I've come to appreciate them very much, and we have a very famous seabird that comes to Point Arena called Al the Lace and Albatross. And this uh, bird has come from all over the world to see this bird. You'll find out what's so special about Al and a whole lot more about our special part of the Northern California coast and the birds and the bears and the lions and the wildflowers, the whales, and so much more there that's going on. We're hoping to get Jeannie to give us a regular phone-in report on some of the most unusual or interesting nature sightings up there on that part of the coast. And, of course, we're going to have lots of gorgeous nature photos on andystreasuretrove.com. I don't know about you, but for me, beauty is one of the most important things going on, and nature has some of the best examples of beauty that we can access. On now to a brief excerpt from an interview that I recently did with Caitlin Manning, a filmmaker and a university professor whose new project hits pretty close to home for her. My grandfather was Al Cap, and he was the uh, creator of Little Abner, and anybody over maybe 55 will remember very well because he was a sort of pop culture phenomenon um, between 1934 and 1979 when he died. There's a hillbilly world and then there's a city world where they you know, where they venture into and have all their adventures. A lot of the adventures actually happen in the city. I mean, the Beverly Hillbillies was pretty much a ripoff of Little Abner. Before, there were there, there was the adventure strip and there was a the humor strip, and he combined those to be, you know, the, it was like humor and adventure and social. And then the social satire kind of evolved. Mm-hmm. You know, so social satire, humor, and adventure, and that combination really hadn't existed before for Little Abner. I mean, there's a hilarity. There's a, a wild, zany hilarity, surrealist hilarity to it and interestingly i mean the language some of the language which is you know it's it's a fantasy of the south that language became readopted into the american vernacular like there were phrases like naturally and uh, and triple whammy and of course sadie hawkins say that's more an event than just a term but these terms were mean, household words you mean say but, uh, but sadie hawkins was a real person before no no no, no. sadie hawkins was a complete invention of little abner oh really mm-hmm. I, I never knew that mm-hmm. Oh, happy day, if I had my druthers. He was really outspoken against McCarthy in a way that very few people dared to be. Very few liberals dared to be mm. that outspoken. And, um, and there was an exchange with McCarthy in the papers. And, um, and then at a certain point, he, he made a big claim of having to change the strip because now you can't talk about 
politics anymore in this country. So I'm going to change the strip and I'm going to make Little Abner marry Daisy May. They made the cover of Time magazine. I mean, it was this big, huge world. It was a world event that Little Abner and Daisy May got married after decades of uh, storylines revolving around Little Ab- uh, Daisy May chasing after Little Abner. <laughs> there was articles all over the world. You know, people were like, oh my God, what has Alcap done? And he took that opportunity to make a public statement against the, 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 the climate of censorship in the country. So for me, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of like ride through uh, American social history mm-hmm. because everything that comes up in the strip are these big social issues of the day. So there's not really one major issue that doesn't appear in some way in the strip, you know, under the guise of satire, you know, the arms race, the hippie movement, the McCarthy era. I mean, everything is there. So it's like this incredible sort of documentation in some way, satirical documentation of what the population was concerned with. And like just about every other documentary I've done, it also stands to be very controversial um, because my grandfather went from being a uh, kind of hardcore civil libertarian, progressive-minded, um, you know, New Dealer type person to being sort of a, a very, uh, basically a Nixon supporter mm-hmm. and uh, a, a, a loud Nixon supporter. What happened? <laughs> Well, that's partly what the documentary is about. It happened in the, in the mid-60s, and it's very marked. Uh, it happens sort of quite quickly. And, um, you know, to me, it's sort of looking at why that happened is really part of an explanation of what happened in the 60s. You know, because the nation did become, like, incredibly divided. The whole 60s movement really threw the nation into this, like, uh, two camps. That's a story I know you're going to find very interesting. Let's go now to a trip to Los Angeles I made a few months ago, where, among other people, I spoke to a man who talked to me about the elusive nature of fame, based on his experience as Chopper King of many a Discovery Channel motorcycle building reality show. Hugh King, a.k.a. Chopper King, will also tell us about his activity in the coffeehouse movement back in his radical youth, as well as a story involving revisiting an old house where things didn't quite go as planned. The look evolved, and I became known as Chopper King. So I get stopped in airports. Hey, Chopper King, how you doing? Love your show. Photo ops, and it was great. It was like I was um, Tom Cruise or something (laughs) for about 15 seconds. (laughs) I'd do anything to get it back, but I can't think of what it is. And also, you also I'll kiss any ass, just I don't know where, you know, just tell me where. <laughs> Around 68, 69, 70, there was a whole movement in the United States. It was called the Coffee House Movement. Radicals, they were establishing coffee houses on the edges of major military bases in the United States. And they went to Fort Bragg, Fort Sill, Fort Hood in in Washington, Fort Ord in California. And there was one at Fort Dix, New Jersey, which was a major jump-off point for Vietnam. So a lot of people from SDS established, they were called coffeehouse collectives. And so you not only had this coffeehouse out of which you published propaganda and newspaper, you had to live someplace. In this particular case, we had a farmhouse and we all lived there. But in the daytime, we went to the coffeehouse, which was a converted Carvel stand. And Carvel was soft ice cream stand. And we turned it into this 
action center where where the GIs would come, the soldiers would come after they got off duty, and we would foment. You know, we would foment trouble and revolution. And you're talking about cappuccino, right? <laughs> no, not talking about cappuccino. We're about fomenting trouble. It was truly dangerous because there were a lot of people in the military that wanted to kill us. We didn't know what we were, the forces that we were dealing with. But we had the moral authority. When you have the moral authority, or when you sense that you have the moral authority, nothing can stop you. And the lady who lived there came out and asked me, you know, what are you doing? I said, I'm taking a picture of this house. And she said, why? And I said, because this is, I used to live here. She said, so really? I said, yeah, I lived here right after the Second World War. She said, well, why don't you come in? So she invited me in. And I think by the end of my visit, she'd wish she hadn't. <laughs> of course, you'll find out why she wished she hadn't when you hear the whole story. Remember Karen Peterson, who went to the cafe in the Columbarium with me? Well, she's the chief librarian at the Writers Guild of America Foundation in Hollywood. And on a future episode of Andy's Treasure Trove, you'll learn all about the amazing collection they have there. It says, Goodbye, Mr. Zanuck. It certainly has been a pleasure working at 16th Century Fox. Seems like all the hot shows start with S. Seinfeld, The Shield, Six Feet Under, Scrubs. Scrubs is very popular. We have so many Seinfeld episodes here that it's one, two, three, it's on five different shelves. This here on the floor, we've left, uh, we've left this vintage, uh, donation of vintage uh, TV scripts on the floor to just sort of dry out and debug because they've clearly been in a dank place or a dark buggy place for probably 40 years. Ain't that old Ben Cartwright taking the San Francisco stage? Sure is. Long shot, their angle. Across the street, we see Adam shake hands with Ben, who gets on the stage. The driver whips up the horses, and the stage takes off. Back to Kirk and Bradley. We've been worried about a place to hide the stuff when it comes. Not a soul will ever think of looking on the Ponderosa. Well, listeners, if you know the episode of Bonanza that that is, please call call the Writers Guild. Call the Writers Guild Foundation, and uh, please let me know, because I'd appreciate the help. (laughs) And so this is the old bank vault. They took off the big metal two-foot-thick door. Oh, darn. And uh, it has no windows. It's got a concrete floor and hopefully fireproof. So that's where we keep our old archival boxes of material, photos, scripts, uh, rare and unusual things. We have uh, jokes that the Bob Hope writers uh, did uh, for his radio shows. Well, now you've opened up the box that inside the box is a well-worn volume with scotch tape reinforcement everywhere, and it's about four inches thick, and it has a big title on the front that says, The Gag File. Volume one. These are, I guess, old the old chestnuts uh, Somebody typed out all these jokes arranged by topic, like airplanes, animals, actors. These are thousands and thousands of jokes. These are thousands and thousands of jokes. So who knows what's in there until you open them up or look at the catalog. It's like a treasure trove. It is. (laughs) While in Los Angeles, I checked out a deli I hadn't been to before, Factors, ran into a friend there. I also had lunch with writer and physicist Kyle Jewhurst, 
who tried to explain to me how quantum physics is responsible for flash drives. Then we visited Griffith Park from the Griffith Park Observatory, where we learned more about how the world works. And we took a little refreshing spin around the Griffith Park carousel. Let's hear those excerpts now. Well, you never know who you'll run into in Factor's famous deli here since 1948. Where are, what street are we on? Pico. On Pico. In fact, right here I ran into Jim Van Buskirk. <laughs> a jolly fellow who's hungry and ready for lunch. Absolutely. So we're talking about digital storage, and you mentioned that a flash drive works on the same principle as... Uh, well, it uses quantum tunneling. So basically, quantum tunneling is... So if you picture like a cup and there's a, like a ball in it, mm-hmm. um, that ball's not going anywhere, right? Right. It's like, because it, it's, I mean, you can think of it in the sense that there's a certain energy it would take to lift it out of the cup. Uh-huh. What we're looking at here is the Foucault pendulum, and what we have is the first man-made experiment, first man-made demonstration that shows the Earth is rotating. So we have a ball swinging here in this pit, ball weighs close to 240 pounds, attached onto a cable that's 40 feet in length, runs up to the ceiling, up into that hole right there, where it's attached onto a collar that's surrounded by a ring of electromagnets. Those magnets there will keep the ball swinging all day, all night in the same direction. But if you walked away from here and you came back a few hours later, you would swear on everything you own that the motion of the ball, the direction has changed ball stays constant, everything attached to the Earth is rotating around it. Well, that's the glorious thing about this. It's so counterintuitive. Exactly. You think that's the, that's the thing that's moving. That's exactly right. Something happened to me near the carousel that I'm still feeling the effects of months later. I'll tell you about that. But now let's hear a short clip from a conversation I had with my writer friend Jim Van Buskirk, who I ran into at Factors Deli in Los Angeles, when we had tea at the Palace Hotel in San Francisco, right across the aisle from some cute little girls in pink dresses and birthday tiaras. They're all business here. It's because we're not wearing tiaras. Well, I have my tiara story. You do? Mm-hmm. Triggered by these huh? beautiful young ladies in their elegant tiaras. Or TRI. What's what's the plural of tiaras? I think tiaras. I think. What's your tiara story? Well, when I was growing up with my grandmother in Los Angeles, she had been an opera singer in France in the 20s and 30s. So she had photographs of her father in a big, dressed as a king in a big ermine coat. And she had the posters and photographs behind the couch. And she had this and that. But up where she stored the pillows, where my brother and I, when we would stay over, we would have to get up on this chair and get the pillows out of the cupboard. And wedged between the pillows, was a tiara. Was it a real tiara? No, it was a. It was something that she had worn in a. As a part of a costume. As a part of a costume, but she had schlepped it all the way from Paris through New York to Los Angeles as an artifact of her career in France. And I had fantasies about that tiara. I wanted to wear it. I wanted to have it. 
I was just fascinated with the tiara. And... Will Jim get his clutches on that tiara? And will he reclaim his grandmother's ring, promised to him but whisked away by his mother? And now for something completely different. I recently spent time with about 20 first graders. They read books to me that they had written called All About Me, and they each answered a question that I was burning to ask them. I want you to meet a few of them now very briefly, and we'll spend more time with them in a future episode. My name is Billy Isaac Ajaya. Jessica. Melly, Joanna, Ruben, Louise, Jonathan, Valerie, Crystal. Further along the educational continuum, we'll be talking with some recent graduates from an Ivy League college. The title of the paper that I presented was Picturing Desire, the Logics of Consumption, and the Sexual Textual Revisions of Dorian Gray. And so um, my, my paper focused on um, how some of the moments, the erotic moments in the text were erased in the 1891, the latter version, and replaced with um, aspects of dandiacal decadence, as you could say, um, and sort dandiacal of... Dandiacal decadence. <laughs> yes. um, like the logics, of, uh, sort of ideologies of, of consumption, which were sort of emergent at that time because of the emerging consumer economy. So I look at how uh, sort of gay identity was articulated through consumption and its resonance today. A comparative study of Plato's Apology, of Socrates, and um, Aristophanes' Clouds. Um, essentially I was looking at why Plato in an essentially fabricated account of so the trial of Socrates invoked this um, comedy which may or may not have been um, slander. Did you come to any conclusions? Yes. Um, um, I spent a lot of time working in biology, more specifically in genomics, which is sort of the hip new field where we're using all of the new sequencing information to try to help, help progress biological research. Did an analysis of um, sexual assault and rape education uh, on campus. We started a new uh, publication called Polycom, which is a research journal, uh, publishes political communication scholarship, sort of a rapidly uh, developing field these days. Um, really, I think, the best way to understand uh, sort of our political culture uh, these days. So how are you going to spend your summer? Um, I'm actually going to be working for Senator Barack Obama. What did you do right after college? One of my guests, Linda Service, tells about her first job out of college working for, well, you'll find out. Uh, I went immediately as one should when one lives in Dearborn, Michigan. I, I went immediately to the East Coast after college and uh, to New York City, and I got a job. At that time, no one knew it was a CIA front, so I was actually a CIA mole in my very first job. Linda is also going to be giving us her personal slant on real estate. With decades of experience in the real estate market, she approaches the market in a way that's probably unique in the Bay Area. And you seemed to be, and you can tell me if you still are, the only person doing real estate as you do it uh, here in the San Francisco Bay Area. I believe I am. I haven't heard about anybody else that has done it. I'm considered heretical among my colleagues. Hmm, a heretical realtor. Well, she got the job done for us. 
You'll learn more about how she approaches real estate and her background in the CIA and the State Department, as well as her favorite flavor of ice cream, when we play Linda Service's interview for you. In another upcoming episode, we'll be speaking with Lori Amat, who calls herself a vocalist, but I think she's more of a magician. Listen to just a tiny bit of the music she made in my bathtub. Listen to her teaching me how to say quahogging. 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 Perhaps you're more the literary type and you're interested in the annual literary festival in San Francisco called Litquake. The event's producer, Liam Passmore, ran into me at a party recently and reminded me that Litquake is coming up this October. And remind me of over how many days and nights Litquake occurs. Um, nine days. October 3rd through October 11th, 2008. It's that, you know, that big arts and culture weekend here in San Francisco. You got um, partly strictly bluegrass, you have Litquake, and of course the Blue Angels. So, the yeah. trifecta. Liam told me about some really interesting things that are going to be happening this year at Litquake. And uh, as I've been saying repeatedly, you'll hear more details in a future episode of Andy's Treasure Trove. Right now I want to uh, let you eavesdrop on a party that I attended on the occasion of a good friend announcing a whole string of good luck. Champagne? Thank you. Here's my deal. This is what I've asked you all to celebrate here. In the fall... I've been offered a visiting associate professorship at Harvard University. And in the spring of 2009, I will be a Bain Research Fellow at UC Berkeley, a UC Regents Distinguished Visiting Lecturer position at UC Santa Cruz in the Feminist Studies Department. I am the recipient this year of the Monette Horwitz Award. The thing that I'm actually kind of most like, what's the word? flummoxed about is that I have been asked to give the 2008 Kessler Lecture. Wow. Wow. They like you. They, they really like, like you. Really <laughs> like it's like, right. It's like years of drought and then like all of a sudden it's like... <laughs> that was Susan Stryker who epitomizes the tagline of this podcast, Culture, Art, and Fun. We're going to have a fascinating and fun chat with Susan in a future episode. Maureen Gosling, longtime film editor for filmmaker Les Blank, is a filmmaker in her own right and tells us about her film Blossoms of Fire, as well as a recording artist whose music we'll be featuring on the podcast. First, though, she tells us about the production of the Werner Herzog film Fitzcarraldo and the documentary she and Les Blank made of that film being shot, Burden of Dreams. And then, of course, he went through uh, two or three protagonist main characters, Jack Nicholson, um, Jason Robards, he had Mick Jagger in there for a while, but that, then Mick Jagger had to go on tour, and so he ended up with Klaus Kinski, and we went back for two and a half more months, and that's when we did the bulk of our filming. But anyway, Burden well, I just want to say that Burden sure. of Dreams is, um, I, I might risk saying, a more interesting film than Fitzcarraldo. It's uh, an incredible, incredible journey following Herzog on his own journey. Blossoms of Fire, which was a film that got finished in 2000 and came out on DVD just a year and a half ago, being distributed by New Yorker Films. It's actually on Amazon, it's on Netflix, which is very cool. And um, it's a film about 
a community in southern Mexico, uh, the Zapotecs of uh, southern Oaxaca, Isma Zapotecs, who have a reputation of being a matriarchy. One of the developments which has been really fun is one of the women in the film has since become an amazing singer. And she, uh, Marta Toledo is her name. She lives in the city of Oaxaca now. She, sort of, she moved from Juchitan, which is the place where the film was made, and has, um, is an indigenous woman who has so far sung traditional songs from her region. We'll be playing a little bit of Marta's music at the end of this episode, this preview, episode zero, which there are only a few minutes left of, so hang in there and listen to a couple minutes from an adventure I recently had with my friend Brooks Collins, who studies plane crashes and who took me to a site just south of San Francisco where we searched for the wreckage of a flight that went down there in 1964. On the other side of that hill over there is the, uh, the gap the plane was trying to fly through. Unfortunately, they uh, turned towards the ocean and turned too far, so they went off to the right of their planned course. And, unfortunately, the area here is higher than the gap they were shooting for. Hear that? Is that the ghost of flight? What was the flight? (laughs) 213. 282, I think. 282. But no, that's it's a modern plane going through the gap. We're not far away. We're going to have to do a little, little bushwhacking here. Oh, what's this? Well, it's plane wreckage interspersed with some stuff I'm not sure of. Brooks is also a former employee of the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center, and he'll be telling us a lot about that installation and the trend away from pure research into military research. Indulge me for a moment as I share with you a little bit of a recording from my youth many, many years ago. Hello, hello. This is Andy Moore and Jay Hall. The date is October 4th, 1970. This tape, if you have found it, was deposited in a small metal jar in the hopes that someone in the future would find it and would listen to it and would hear what's going on in this year. That was my friend Jay Hall and me doing, I guess, the equivalent of podcasting back then. Well, it was rescued, and I'm going to play a little bit more of it for you on a future episode. And we'll be talking to Jay Hall and some other members of an organization called The Tads, who put on neighborhood puppet shows and made Super 8 films and recordings like the one you just heard. Well, friends, those are some of the features that we have in the pipeline. Additionally, we've got a lot more writers reading their stories and poetry. Ken Paul Rosenthal, Cara Daddario, Ralph Jack, defense attorney Mike Carroll, and many others. We take a trip to Camden, New Jersey, in search of the old church that Fats Waller used to play the organ in. We have a chat with Willie Brown about his new book, Basic Brown. And we go to lots more parties, film festival parties, many other kinds of parties. Plus, lots of stories from people along the way. I think you get the idea that I consider the world my treasure trove. And I'm putting together some of the best gems in the trove to share with you via your computer, your CD player, your iPod, or other portable listening device. I hope you'll find entertaining, diverse programming with a good dose of whimsy added. So please subscribe now via iTunes, free from Apple, so that episode one will be delivered to you hot off the pod press. Thanks for listening. Let's close with an astrological forecast for the month of July from our very own Joanne Brazil. In the month of July, there's a lot of personal energy. It's a very family 
oriented month. July always is about homes and families and security. So this July, as most Julys, planet Venus, for example, is in Cancer, and that's security, emotional security. Venus is also beauty. So a lot of people like to fix up their homes and beautify their homes, you know, whether you live in a room or half a room or a mansion or whatever. It's like to make it more secure and more pretty. Then Mercury goes into Cancer and it makes makes it more interesting because maybe everything's pretty, but maybe it's still boring. So maybe it buys some books or something and makes a bookshelf. And then the very last few days of July, Mercury is into Leo, and Mercury wants to go on stage. Maybe, maybe just wherever you are is your stage. Thanks, Joanne. See you in August, and let's hear from Marta Toledo on the way out. Caru linga nyani gushana na na Ya we know that he